Thanks, Reuben. Nice to be with you here this evening. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 6. This evening, if you have a Bible, you could turn there. For Samuel chapter 6. Now, today's passage is actually a brilliant depiction of the human dilemma. Because we can't live with God and we can't live without Him. And today's passage is about people trying to get rid of God because He is too dangerous, then kind of yearning for Him again because they can't live without Him. You know, it's, this, it's the human dilemma. In the end, we find a people who actually learn to live with God in harmony. That's what we're going to discover as we go through this passage. And do you know what? It turns out to be the best and safest place in the universe. It's difficult to get there, but it's worth getting there. This is, uh, like, we'll see humanity in miniature. Because in the book of Revelation, if you go to the end of the Bible, you'll see that this is the story of history. History will end up with two groups One who will flee from the throne and the presence of God for their lives and there'll be no escape. They'll be cast into outer darkness. And another who have learned to live with God in harmony. (laughs) That's the two groups. That's humanity. There's where the story is going. And this is the story in miniature right here in 1 Samuel 6 and 7. And, And those who, you know, all of humanity in the end will be split into these two groups. And today's passage will show us how we, how we can live in perfect harmony with God. Now, in this passage, the ark of the Lord is actually it's a golden box in which God sat enthroned. And that represents his throne, his presence, okay? And last week, Ollie was taking us through the previous chapters. And we learned that the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, they captured the ark but they found it very difficult to live with, right? You know, they put it in the temple of their supreme god, Dagon, and as if, you know, they were kind of saying as if their god, Dagon, had beaten Israel's god. And then in the morning, they found their god, Dagon, lying on the ground and his head and his hands cut off. And it was kind of embarrassing to pick up your god and superglue his head back on and his hands back on. So God was proven difficult to live with. Embarrassing, Right? Then God started to cause plagues. Every city of the Philistines that he was in, there would be these mice or rats and and, and these tumors. And they kept moving the ark from city to city. And and God was proving really difficult to live with. They couldn't handle him. And finally, the Philistine leaders, they decide to hold an emergency cabinet meeting to decide what are we going to do with God? How do we get rid of him, basically? And that's where we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. And we're going to read the whole chapter into chapter 7, verse 2. It says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. We want rid of it, right? They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. 
Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? They did not send the people away and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so. They took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord in the cart and the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Akron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Akron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled cities. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So every time the ark moved to a new city of the Philistines, the city became plagued by mice or rats and some embarrassing disease in the nether regions of the Philistines. And it was just embarrassing, and something had to be done, as none of this was doing their pride any good. So the Philistines devised a science experiment to determine if it was God who caused these plagues or if it was just an unfortunate coincidence. And they said, notice what they say, let's not hold the ark here. Why would we harden our hearts? Do you not remember what happened to Egypt whenever they hardened their hearts and wouldn't let God go and the plagues that came upon them? God dealt very severely with Egypt. Our problems are mild in comparison. So notice that they had learned, you know, from history what God had done to the Egyptians just some years before this, whenever they refused to let God go. So they were like, let's not fall into that trap. 
And they even made golden statues of, of these mice or rats and tumors as a guilt offering and an attempt to give glory. Look at what they say, that, they, that we might give glory to the God of Israel. So they come up with this rather ingenious scientific experiment and to make absolutely sure that this is definitely God who's causing these issues, these plagues. And they took two female cows who had just given birth and they yoked them both to a new cart and they put on the cart this, the ark of God, God's throne, and they said, if this cart returns to Israel, it must be God. For two reasons. Two reasons this would be impossible. Number one is these cows had never been yoked together, so to get them to walk in any kind of straight line was impossible. <laughs> they, they had never learned how to be together in a yoke. I don't know much about farming, but apparently that takes a while, right? And the other problem is these are two female cows. They had just given birth to calves, and they were going to you know, lock up the calves at home, and these cows would never leave their calves. Their natural maternal instincts would make that utterly impossible. And so if, if these cows go back to Israel carrying the ark, that's God is driving them. That's the only explanation here. And sure enough, against all the, the experience and the cow's natural maternal instincts, off they went, leaving their calves behind, and the text adds that they were lowing as they went. <laughs> they felt it. These mothers, in a sense, right? But there was some divine force driving them on. And the cows felt the pain of leaving their calves behind, yet something greater than nature drove them on towards Israel. And Prof Gooding points out the genius of this section. Do you see it? That this whole revival of Israel's started in chapter one whenever a mother left our son behind in the temple of God for the service of God, a wee boy called Samuel. And we come to the end of this first section of 1 Samuel, and two mothers leave their boys behind in the service of God. This, this is genius. And the Philistines watched the two cows make a beeline. Sorry for the mixed animal metaphors there, but they right to the territory of Israel. It says they turn neither left or right, and they arrive just as the Israels are, Israelites are out in the fields reaping wheat at harvest time. And can you imagine the sight of these Jews? They had lost the ark. They had no chance of getting it back. The Philistines were a far stronger military force and here it comes back by itself, just across the fields, by itself. And seven months before, it had been a whole seven months, and they hadn't even attempted once to get it back. And here's their prized possession, bringing itself home, trundling along with these two cows. And it says they rejoiced to see it. Too right, they rejoiced because this was Israel, Israel's key distinction among all the nations. This was their supreme glory. They were the one nation in which the, the true God dwelt in their midst. That was the whole point in being Israel. God was with them and they had lost it. God was gone. His throne, where God sat, the Ark of the Covenant. They had lost their very distinctiveness and here was God coming home in the most humble transportation. 
And it says the Philistines break up the cart. They offer the two cows as a burnt offering to God or the, the Israelites. And then the Philistines watch all of this and they return home convinced that this was true. Their experiment had proved that God was indeed behind all their troubles. Now this, of course, happened a long time ago. And the ark, the golden box that represents God's very throne and his presence, it no longer exists. But a long time after this, God himself came again to Israel, not on a golden box. He came in the person of Jesus Christ, God born as a man. And again, he came in the most humble of circumstances. He was born in a lowly cattle shed, and Israel did not rejoice. They didn't even recognize him. Their very crowning glory, their Messiah, and again, their crowning glory was lost among the other nations. Uh, and this is the still, you know, that, that, that's where God now lives. God now lives in the church, in all the nations of the world, in his people, all those who have received him. And this is the very thing that keeps the people of God, like us, distinct. You know, our very glory is that God is with us. Otherwise, what are we as a church? Just a social club, just a bunch of people that have a common interest in the Bible? Is there nothing more to us than that? Does God dwell within each one of us and with us as a church? And, and if we as churches or as individuals have lost that reality, the very thing that should make us distinct as a people group, the presence of God, well, this passage is going to show us how to get that back. And do you know how it'll begin? It'll begin by some people, maybe one, someone here, following the example of Hannah and of these two cows. It all it took was a few individuals, isn't it, in this nation to, to kick off an entire revival. And I don't normally use cows as good examples to follow, but in this case, like, these two cows, they... You know, the church and some of us need to learn to live for something greater than just our natural desires, to eat and sleep and mate and have families and those natural things that drive us. Is there nothing else that drives us, nothing greater? And today, you know, we're encouraged to be true to ourselves, to follow our heart, and basically to, we are encouraged to allow our instincts and our natural desires to completely control us. And this passage is saying there is something far greater than that. There is a far greater way to live. And that's not where your natural instincts control you. It's where the God of glory controls you. You live for something bigger than just nature. And perhaps if the, if the people of God, if, if some of us regained a sense of God's presence in our midst and began to live for him, began to walk that same road that these two cows walked, and do you know where that road leads to? It leads to sacrifice and death. And it makes no sense to walk that road. But perhaps if some of us started to walk that same road, then those who are watching, it would help prove to the watching world that there really is more to life than mere nature. So the Philistines observed this. And the Philistines, they couldn't live with God, and now he's back home in Israel. So we're thinking, well, everything should be smooth from here. Like, <laughs> this is, you know, his home. Like, 
Israel, of all people, ought to know how to live with God in perfect harmony. But that is the problem. They should have known better. And you see this very family, this city of Beth Shemesh, it was a Levitical city set aside for the clan of Kohath. Does that ring any bells? The very family in Israel charged with the responsibility for caring for the Ark of the Covenant. It couldn't have ended up in a more perfect place, could it? If there was any city in Israel who knew how to look after the ark, it was the clan of Kohath. And they should have been the experts in treating God's throne with the utmost dignity and respect. And Moses had actually taught them that whenever you're going to move the ark, right, it was normally in the tabernacle, as you know, in the Holy of Holies, in the very most holy place in the tabernacle. And the, this clan of Levites, they were meant to kind of reverse in, right, without looking at the ark, and cover it with the, with the curtains of the, of the tabernacle, and then pick it up and transport it and wait until the tabernacle was built again, and then they would kind of reverse in again and take off the curtains and leave without even looking at the ark. You know, treat it with the utmost dignity and respect because there was only one person allowed to look at it and that was the great high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, that was it. So their behavior here is astounding. Look at what they do. It says, when the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and they set it upon a great stone. <laughs> they set it up for everybody to look at. And, and it actually says in the original Hebrew that they tried to look inside. It implies they tried to look inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Lord struck some of them dead. And once again, their solution, just like the Philistines, is to get rid of the ark. <laughs> and they say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? They just want rid of him. And God again is once again proving too hard to live with for these Israelites who should have known how to live with him. And you see, some people think that becoming a Christian will make your life safer. Well, <laughs> I am afraid that is not true. Now, we're safe, we're safe eternally from, from eternal damnation. We're absolutely safe and secure. But God takes his children's behavior very seriously, far more seriously than anybody else on earth. So we're, we're not at all safe. Aslan is not a tame lion. And knowing a lot about the Bible is dangerous because then God holds us more accountable to obey it. And God allowed the Philistines, he allowed them to make these golden rats and transport the ark in a cart, which was kind of ridiculous, but they didn't know any better. And it was their genuine attempt to give glory to the God of Israel, but the people of Beth Shemesh, they knew the law of Moses. And here they are playing with fire, trying to hook inside the ark as if they're in an Indiana Jones movie. So for a Christian to play games with God is absolutely crazy. If those of us who should know better deliberately and blatantly ignore what God says in his word and we come to church and we take the Lord's Supper with no like, intention of repenting or of taking our sins seriously, we are playing with fire. 
It is a blatant challenge to God's very throne and authority. It's like a child who defiantly disobeys their parents as a challenge, as a direct challenge to the parents' authority. Now, they won't get thrown out of the family. <laughs> you know, you're still a child. But we may end up grounded. And Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 that God sometimes even allows his children to become ill or sometimes he takes them straight home to heaven. Like that's the ultimate grounding if they are treating their sin too lightly. God is a good, responsible parent and he will not let his children continue down a road that will make them worse. He will do whatever it takes to train us to take him and you know, his, our sin seriously. So we meet the same dilemma, don't we, here? You know, the Philistines couldn't live with God. The, the men of Beth Shemesh could not live with God. Uh, and everybody's just trying to get rid of the ark. And they ask another city called Kiriath-Jerim to come and take it. And look, look at what they say. Who is able to stand before the Lord, the holy God? And the new city, Kiriath-Jerim, they are actually linked to the Gibeonites, another people group who had been incorporated into Israel. So the irony is that these supposed experts didn't know how to live with their own God, and yet they kind of let them live with these blow-ins. And the people of Kiriath-Jerim, it says, they came with genuine care and respect and, and treated the ark as it should be treated, and God stayed there for 20 years with no problems. That's all he asked. But then it says, all Israel lamented after the Lord. Do you see the dilemma? They can't live with God and can't live without him. <laughs> and and this can be experienced. Even as Christians, we can find it too hard to live with God, you know, for God. So we live for other things, we, normal, natural things, having a family, making money, comfort, riches, success. Yet after 20 years or so of that, we realize it's not enough. We lament after the Lord. And that is a really good stage of life to get to, isn't it? Kind of mid middle age or so where you've lived for so many other things and you realize it's not enough. It's too small. So, they, so Israel are finally ready to live with God in their midst. And thankfully this time there is actually someone raised up in the 20 years to teach them how to do just that. And his name is Samuel. And Hannah's son, the prophet Samuel, had been raised up to teach them and us how to live in harmony with God. And he's going to show us three things are needed. Number one, repent of all your other gods. Number two, self-judgment. Take your sins seriously. Number three, depend on the Lord. So let's read what Samuel teaches them, how to live with God in perfect harmony. And we'll, we'll come in at verse five here. Or verse three, sorry. That should say of one, of 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. 
Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, there we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Akron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So here we have the main lesson of this passage for us. It's to teach us what is required to live for God, to live with God in harmony. And number one is repentance. He says, put away all your other gods. That's step one. Once and for all. God won't put up with being a second husband or a bit in the side. He will only tolerate a genuine, faithful relationship when we live for him first and foremost. To live at peace with God, we must put him above everything else. If our family or friends are more important than him, or our natural desires for pleasure or our ambitions for success, it isn't going to go well. This relationship is not going to be harmonious. God has to be number one. And Samuel teaches us here that God must be number one. The Philistines had learned the hard way that God does not play well with other gods. He destroys them. So that's number one, repent of all your other gods, all the other things you're living for, and live for God only. Number two is self-examination and confession of sin. If we're going to live in harmony with God, we must learn to take our sins seriously. God doesn't put up with rival gods, and he does not tolerate unconfessed sin. Now, now don't misunderstand this. God does not require you to be sinless or me. <laughs> that is not the point. Because that would be entirely impossible. He knows we're sinners. He just doesn't want us to hide that. God is not asking us to get rid of our sin. He says, I will do that. I just need you to bring it to me, to confess it, to take it seriously. Just like Israel does here. Look, they gathered at Mizpah and they fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. That's all he's asking to bring it out in the open and to own it, to call it what it is. It is sin, not to excuse it or defend it. And then look at what Samuel does here. He takes a little innocent suckling lamb, a beautiful picture of the perfect spotless Lord Jesus and offers it as a sacrifice on their behalf. And what a clear picture this is as to how God would remove their sins and ours 
through the sacrifice of his innocent son as our substitute. You see, this is how God has provided for us to live in harmony with him. God is not unrealistic or unreasonable. He isn't asking us to be any better than we are. He is just asking us to admit what we are and come to him to allow him to take care of us, take care of our sin, and he will. So that's number one, the repentance of other gods. Number two, the self-examination and confession of sin. And number three is to depend on him, to learn to trust in him alone. And of course, as all of this is going on, the Philistines end up attacking the Israelites at this very moment. And the, the Philistines obviously thought this religious gathering was a perfect opportunity to attack them while they're off their guard. But instead of the natural inclination to disassemble and fight back, what did they do? They asked Samuel to cry out to the Lord to save them. <laughs> Fantastic. They have actually learned their lessons well. They realize they don't even need to fight. They just have to ask the Lord to fight for them. And of course it says the Lord thundered from heaven with a mighty sound and he threw the Philistines into confusion and disarray. He turned the tables and they were defeated. And it says the Philistines never attacked Israel again all the days of Samuel because Samuel had taught the people how to live in harmony with God so they were immune. They were absolutely safe. God Samuel had brought God and the nation into a harmony, and so the nation was safe. And Samuel set up a big stone and called it Ebenezer, which means, till now the Lord has helped us. As a reminder of how the Lord had helped them, not just that day, but right up till that day. Through all of this long period, God had trained up Israel in how to live with him and enjoy perfect peace and security. Think of how you've done that through all these lessons. Because think back over 20 years before this, think of the contrast with chapter four. Do you remember last week you thought about how they lost the ark? And it was in this exact same spot. So they hadn't moved anywhere, but yet they had moved, they had been on quite a journey. So back in chapter four, in the exact same place, Ebenezer, they had actually attacked the Philistines. It wasn't the Philistines attacking them. They had gone out to attack the Philistines in arrogant self-confidence, no trust in God. And then they lost some soldiers and they blamed God, first of all. And then they tried to use God like a lucky charm as if God's throne was a magic box or as Ollie said last week, like using God like a genie in a bottle. They took the ark out to fight for them. And God showed, but... You know, God refused to help. But in the many years since, God taught the Philistines, then Israel, that he could not be used nor treated lightly and that he would help and protect them if they were willing to come before him humbly and seek his grace and help. He would indeed fight for them. And this time, think of the contrast. It is the Philistines who attack, not Israel. And the noise this time isn't the shouting of the Israelites whenever the ark comes in. It's not man-made, it is God himself who shouts from heaven. This is the real thing. And this time the Philistines don't just man up and fight back even harder. This time the Philistines melt away in disarray. And they never come back to attack because they recognize that that is the real thing. 
See, Samuel is teaching us that the safest place in the entire universe is not to get away from God, but to learn to live with him. You will never be attacked. And as I said at the start, this is not just an ancient story. This is a miniature version of humanity's dilemma. Throughout history, mankind has tried to control God and found it impossible, like they were doing here. We've tried to use God, and it just backfires. We have tried to get rid of him and found we can't live without him. And we still need Samuel to teach us how to live in harmony with God. It's hard. It means making God number one. It means taking your sins seriously. And it means learning to trust in him alone, not in ourselves. See, God is not safe. He, he has a solution to our sin, and we can learn to stand before him. And when we do, it turns out to be the safest place in the universe. Now, this is a hard lesson for us humans to learn. But if you turn, if you read in Revelation chapter 7, you know what you'll realize? You'll show that whenever history is done, whenever this age comes to its end, there's going to be many, many millions of people who have learned that lesson. They have learned how to live with God in perfect harmony. They have learned how to stand before the throne of a holy God with no fear, and they find safety and security for the rest of eternity. There will be no Philistines to attack, no disease, no death, just life and peace forevermore in the presence of God. I'm just going to read these verses in Revelation 7 to show how history will end up and the people who have learned to live in harmony with God. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you see the connection? Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them, will protect them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is going to be many millions of people who have learned to live in harmony with God, and they will enjoy perfect security and peace forevermore. Let's give thanks. Lord, we do thank you for your word and how this little miniature picture of, of how difficult it is for us humans to learn to live in harmony with you. And we all, many of us here still this evening, are struggling with these same things. You know, we live for other things and they don't satisfy us. We try to use you for, for our aims and our objectives, and it, it just comes, it doesn't work. You don't help. You know, or, or sometimes we, we don't take our sins seriously enough, and we face the consequences of that. We find that our God is really hard to live with. But yet, Lord, help us to to listen to Samuel here as he teaches us to repent of everything else, to live for God alone, 
to examine ourselves and take our sins seriously and to learn to trust in you. For Lord, when we do that, we will find it is the safest and most secure place in the entire universe. And it will be for all eternity. Lord, we thank you that you're training up many millions throughout this world, even this very day. You're, you're teaching them how to live with you in perfect harmony. And the day will come when you will gather them all around your throne. And they will sing, salvation belongs to the Lord, to him who sits on the throne, to our God and to the Lamb. And that we will sing your praises forevermore. For you have done everything we need. And Lord, we thank you for providing that Lamb to, to pay for our sins and to make the way for us to live with you forever. And we offer our thanks in his name our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.